The following sermon is brought to you by Capital Community Church, located in Raleigh, North Carolina. Capital Community Church is a people awakened to a holy God. If you are searching for a new church home, or from out of town looking for a church to worship with, or simply seeking for answers, please join us for worship at 10.45 a.m. every Sunday morning and 6 o'clock p.m. for our evening service. If you have any questions, please email us at info at We pray this sermon will help you grow deeper in your walk with Jesus Christ. Let's go to the throne of grace in prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, we pray that in all that we do, that you would be honored, that you would be glorified, and that in every facet of the Christian life that we might find joy, that we would go to the deep well, which is Christ, and drink deeply, that our affections would be for Christ, him crucified, him raised from the dead and ascended and seated at the right hand of God the Father, Lord, may in all that we do desire to please you and to to be worthy of the calling to which we have been called. Lord, may may you speak to us tonight through your word. Lord, we know that your word never returns void. So Lord, use, use the word of God in our lives to instruct us, to teach us, to convict us, to encourage us, to equip us. We love you. We trust you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. I invite you to turn to the book of Jonah in the Old Testament, Minor Prophet. And I want you to turn, I want to start by looking at Jonah chapter 2, verse 9. Jonah 2, 9. Jonah is just this magnificent book. You could say epic book. It's a book that just really transcends the imagination because it has God's fingerprints all over it. You see again and again, God appointed, God appointed, God appointed, God hurled, God sent. It's, it's a book where God puts his muscles on display and you see his work uh, in time and space. It's a really marvelous book, and the main theme of the book is that God is the author of salvation. And I remember being gripped by this verse. This is verse 9 of chapter 2. Jonah is praying this in the belly of the fish. He says, but I with the voice of thanksgiving will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay salvation belongs to the Lord. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And I must confess that I never noticed this verse until about 2010. I was stationed over in Japan. I remember I read this verse. I saw it quoted, I think, in Louis Burkhoff's Systematic Theology. I saw it quoted, and it just stuck with me salvation belongs to the Lord. And I remember going, running on the seawall there at the Marine Corps Air Station, Ibukuni, and just thinking about that one phrase, rolling it over in my mind, salvation belongs to the Lord. Question, what could Jonah do to save himself while he was in the belly of a fish? Nothing. Nothing. Question, What can a man do to save himself from damnation in hell? 
nothing. Nothing. Salvation is completely and entirely of the Lord. And I want to emphasize that from the get-go because many today want to reserve some credit for man in their equation of salvation. Well, I repented. I was spiritually minded. I just was born loving Jesus. But if your understanding of salvation uses the first person singular pronoun I, then you have completely misunderstood what salvation is. Because just as Jonah was saved from the depths of the ocean, from the belly of a fish. So God saves sinners. That's what Paul says. For by grace you have been saved. It is not of works. It is not of yourselves, so that no one can boast. Every act of salvation is a work of the Lord. Which part? All of it. From beginning to end, salvation is of the Lord. And that's what convinced me of the Reformed faith. The Reformed faith. That God is sovereign in salvation. That man, in his own freedom, cannot choose God. God must reach down and pull you up from the depths and cause you, so to speak, to be vomited up on dry land like Jonah. That's the picture of salvation. That salvation completely, entirely belongs to the Lord. And when you understand salvation that way, here's what this means. Who gets the glory for you coming to faith in Christ? God does. God does. Because he's the one who opened your eyes to the truth. You can't say, oh, I was smarter. I was more intellectual. I came from a more, more spiritually minded family. Uh, I was trained in the right institutions. I was homeschooled. I did. You can't do any of that. Because you, you say, no, I was, as Paul says in Ephesians 2, 1, I was dead in my trespasses and sins. But thanks be to God that he raised me up. That's why Jonah says, salvation belongs to the Lord. So, who wrote this book? Obviously, Jonah wrote this book. Jonah was an Israelite prophet. Latin, sometimes you'll see his name as Jonas, or you'd pronounce it in Latin as Jonas. Uh, He is a prophet of the northern kingdom, He is the reluctant prophet. He is the prophet that did not want to be sent by God. We find out in the book of Kings that his father was named Amittai and that he is from a town called Gath-Hefer, which is five miles from Nazareth in Galilee. So when you think about this, here's a prophet. He is from Galilee, and he is sent to bring the message of salvation to a pagan people. Who are you supposed to think of? Jesus. And I think that's obvious. That Jonah is the Christ figure of the book. Jonah is the type of Christ who is to come. He is the prophet from Galilee to the Gentiles. We know that he lived about mid-700s B.C., so mid-8th century 
B.C. Uh, he prophesied during the reign of Jeroboam II in the northern kingdom, probably about 30 years before Assyria would capture the northern kingdom. The northern kingdom came in, so when you think of Israel, think the ten tribes, remember, were in the north, Judah and Benjamin were in the south. 722, Assyria comes and takes the ten tribes away into captivity. They're never heard from again. Babylon takes the lower two tribes, Judah and Benjamin, into captivity in 586. So 722, they are going to be taken into captivity by the Assyrians. And listen, Jonah knows this. How does Jonah know this? Because a prophet has already prophesied that it was going to happen. Uh, jot down these references. Hosea 9.3, Hosea prophesied, they, talking about the northern kingdom, they shall eat unclean food in Assyria. Hosea 10.6, the thing itself shall be carried to Assyria as tribute to the great king. Hosea 11.5, they shall not return to the land of Egypt, but Assyria shall be their king because they have refused to turn to me. So Jonah knows that his people are going to be taken captive into this pagan country. And by the way, th these Assyrians... And Nineveh was really the ruling seat of Assyria, the capital of Assyria. These Assyrians were very brutal people. They were sadistic people. They would torture the people that they defeated in battle. I grew up in Texas. That's how the Comanches were. Everybody, all the tribes in Texas, the Cherokee and the, the Kickapoo, everybody feared the Comanches because if the Comanches caught you, they would do something like they would bury you and let ants eat you, things like that. Same thing with the Assyrians. If they beat you in battle, what they would do is, I, look, I looked this up in a dictionary this week, they would cut off your feet, they would cut off your hands, they would cut off your ears, they would cut off your nose, and they would gouge out your eyes. That's what they would do if they captured you in battle. So these people are a brutal godless people that have no understanding of the dignity of man created in the image of God. So uh, let, me, let me just give you one other reference here. Nahum 3.1, the prophet Nahum says, talking about Nineveh, woe to the bloody city. He calls Nineveh the bloody city, all full of lies and plunder, no end to the prey. So it's, it's a, um, they're godless people. They're a brutal people, and Jonah knows that these people are going to be the ones that defeat Israel. Now, something that's important when studying Jonah, maybe you've even encountered this in a conversation, but it's important to understand what type of book this is. And here's what I mean by this. Is Jonah a myth, or is Jonah history? Is Jonah a myth or is Jonah history? A myth is a fictional story that teaches moral truth. That's what myth is. It's, it's a story that I tell you that, that has a kernel of truth in it that I want you to understand. And many, 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 many historical, biblical scholars past 200 years 
have said, Jonah is myth. We've encountered this. People, people arguing, look, the thing that we need to understand is the moral truth that we're supposed to understand from Jonah. We're not supposed to take Jonah literally as history. Let me give you a quote I came across uh, this week. They said, the most common interpretation nowadays, and one that is held by indubitably orthodox exegetes, is that the story of the prophet being swallowed and then disgorged by a great fish is merely didactic fiction, a great tale told to establish a religious point. Now, people argue that this story is myth because people refuse to believe that a man could be swallowed by a fish and live in its belly for three days and and survive that. They also refuse to believe that this is a historical truth because uh, they say there's no way that a city as big as Nineveh would repent and turn from their wicked ways and come to know the Lord. Now, let me just give you two arguments. One, there are accounts of people being swallowed by whales and surviving. I even saw one on YouTube. Did anybody see this? This guy up in Massachusetts, uh, were you swallowed by a whale? No, I'm just kidding. Okay, you saw it. Okay. But there was a, a guy, he was scuba diving or something off, the, off I think it was in Cape, off, right off Cape Cod, and, and a whale just swallowed him and spit him out. So this isn't just a far-fetched idea. But secondly, and more importantly, is that our Lord argued for the historicity of Jonah in the fish. I want to show you this. If you would turn to the right to Matthew chapter 12. And this is what I point to, by the way, when I'm talking to a Christian, and I've had these conversations where somebody argues that Jonah is myth, I say, look, our Lord didn't believe it was myth. Our Lord didn't believe it is myth. And if you believe that Jonah is myth, here's the catch, you have to believe the resurrection is also myth. You have to believe the resurrection is also myth. Because look what Jesus says. This is... uh, verse 39 of Matthew 12. Jesus says, an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. So Jonah says, look, I'm, or Jesus says, I'm not going to do these miraculous miracles so that you can see I'm going to do the sign of Jonah. That's the sign I'm going to give you. What's the sign of Jonah? Verse 40, for just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. So just as Jonah's sacrificed and swallowed by the fish and and taken down to the depths of the sea for three days, so our Lord is sacrificed and taken into the, the belly of the earth for three days and then rise up. 
he says, verse 41, the men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. So Jesus interprets Jonah for us. He says, look, just as Jonah was in, in the belly of the fish, so I'm going to be in, in the, the ground. If Jonah wasn't in the fish for three days and came out, then Jesus wasn't in the ground for three days and came out. Jesus believed that this is historical fact. And, and Jesus' interpretation of this is typological. And here's what I mean by that. That Jonah is a picture or a type of Christ. That Jonah pictures what Christ would do. Just as Jonah was in the belly of the great fish, so must Christ be in the grave. Just as Jonah brought salvation to the Gentiles from the Jews through self-sacrifice, so Christ brings salvation to the world through self-sacrifice. So really that picture right there if you think about, okay, you know, there's so much truth to learn from Jonah. We're going to talk about all that truth tonight. There's so much truth to take away. But what Jesus picks up on and what Jesus goes to is the fact that, jo that Jonah is this type of Christ. He's this picture. Why did Jesus have to be in the ground for three days? Because Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days. That's why it had to be three days. Let me give you a quote. This was Edward Young, who taught Old Testament at Westminster Seminary for years and years and years, one of the greatest Old Testament figures of the 20th century. Let me give you this quote. Quote, the fundamental purpose of the book of Jonah is not found in its missionary or universalistic, universal, universal, <laughs> universalistic teaching, excuse me, it is rather to show that Jonah, being cast into the depths of Sheol and yet brought up alive, is an illustration of the death of the Messiah for sins not his own and of the Messiah's resurrection. Jonah was an Israelite and servant of the Lord, and his experience was brought about because of the sins of the nations, Nineveh. The Messiah was the Israelite and true servant of the Lord whose death was brought about by the sins of the world. And he says, For as Jonas was three days and three nights in the well's belly, so shall the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh shall rise in judgment with this generation and shall condemn it, because they repented at the preaching of Jonas. And behold, a greater than Jonas is here. Thus, the experience of Jonah has as its basic purpose to point forward to the experience of that one who is greater than Jonas. So that's the main thing of the book, that Jonah pictures Christ who is to come. So with that in mind, I want to just give you, if you would turn back to, to Jonah, just a brief outline, and I'm just going to give you a, a flyby overview of each chapter in Jonah. There's four chapters, and I've summarized them. Chapter one, you could summarize by the, the phrase Jonah's rebellion. The second chapter, Jonah's rescue. The third chapter, Jonah's repentance. And the fourth chapter, 
Jonah's remorse. So let's look at chapter 1, Jonah's rebellion. And I'm, going, I'm not going to read every verse. I'm not going to comment on every verse. But I want, I want you to see some main things here. So the word of God, the word of the Lord, came to Jonah. And verse 2, God said, Arise, get up, and go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it. For their evil has come up before me. So God has seen the evil of the Assyrians, the evil of Nineveh. But notice verse 3, you see Jonah's rebellion. Jonah, I mean, it's a Jew reading this. And Jonah, and I believe Jonah wrote this, obviously, after the fact. I mean, this is just startling that you hear a divine decree from God that God tells you to do something and that you do the exact opposite. I mean, this is just really unbelievable that, that Jonah is so transparent in telling us exactly what he did. Verse 3, uh, Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. Tarshish was on the other side of the Mediterranean. It was 2,000 miles in the opposite direction. People think it's in modern-day Spain. So you're talking about, if you look on a map, you think about Israel, um, Assyria is all the way over to the east, all the way over to the east. It's on the Tigris River where Nineveh is. He's going to Joppa, which is on the coast of the Mediterranean, to get a boat to go the other direction all the way to Tarshish, which they think is, is on the, the, the coast of Spain. So he, he's going in the complete opposite direction that God tells him to go. And by the way, there's no more dangerous place to be for a believer than outside the revealed will of God. That is a fearful place to be. That if you know God has said something and you are walking in direct contradiction to that, you better watch out. You better watch out. Now, here's what's interesting. If you are an unbeliever, what God does is he often just lets you go. He hands you over to more sin, more judgment. But guess what God does with the believer who rebels? Discipline. Discipline. God disciplines his children. That's Hebrews 12, 7. God is treating you as sons, for what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not his son. So God goes after his own. You see that over and over again. God disciplines his own. So the question is, why? Why does Jonah do this? Why does he rebel against God's clear command? Well, the answer's in, in, the, in the book. It's in chapter 4. The reason why Jonah does this is because he was afraid that if he were to go and preach the message, that they would actually repent. Because he says, I know the character of God, and I'm afraid that these people that I hate will actually repent and be saved. I don't want that to happen be like if God's told you today that you need to go to Hollywood or Harvard, and you need to go to these people that hate God, that hate you, that hate everything that we stand for, and you need to go and preach the message of salvation. 
And it's like, man, I don't like those guys. But God says, you're going to go. You're going to go. And Jonah says, no, I'm not going to go. So he goes in the opposite direction. Now, notice this phrase, from the presence of the Lord. From the presence of the Lord. Jonah thought that he could flee from the presence of the Lord. Now, I think he probably knew that that's an impossibility. You can't flee from the presence of the Lord. It's a fool's errand. Psalm 139, 7, Where shall I go from your spirit, or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me, and your right hand shall hold me. I was thinking about the fact that even when he was on the moon, um, Buzz Aldrin took communion. Anybody hear this? Took communion on the moon? God's just as present on the moon as he is here. You, you can't go anywhere in the, in the known universe and escape the presence of God. There's nowhere you can go from his spirit. Nowhere you can go. And yet Jonah, in his mind, I'm leaving the presence of God. I'm trying to run away. And look what God does. Verse 4. But the Lord, Yahweh, hurled a great wind upon the sea. That word hurled is the same word that's used to describe throwing a spear or a javelin. Think about that. God hurled a storm at Jonah. Think about the implications of what that means. God is a creator, yes. But he, is he... Like the deists say, as he stepped away from his creation? No, he is not. Every single thing in God's creation under the sun, God is sovereign over. God is the one who hurled the storm at Jonah. Jesus calms the storm on Galilee. In, in the book of Jonah, God hurls the storm on the Mediterranean. Look at verse 5. Then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God, and they hurled the cargo that was in the ship in the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had laid down and was fast asleep. Here's the symbolism. Verse 1 and 2, God says, You arise, and I'm going to send you. You arise, you stand up in the presence of God. I'm going to send you to Nineveh. Now Jonah is going down into the depths of the ship and he is sleeping. He is doing everything he can to get as far away from the presence of God as possible. So the captain comes to him. He's like, what are you doing? Uh, I, I can't believe you are asleep you need to call out to your God. Uh, it's an interesting thing, isn't it? When, when a pagan reminds you of your, Christian, of your Christian vows and responsibilities, you know, he's saying, look, you need to start praying, otherwise we will all perish. So in the providence of God, they cast lots. 
the lots fall on Jonah as the reason for this storm. And I don't want to get in a theology of lots, okay? But sometimes you see this in Scripture in the book of Acts, and here God uses the casting of lots sovereignly. So you see in the book of Jonah, God's sovereign over everything. There's nothing that God is not sovereign over. Um, they, they, I, this is really fascinating. They, they said to him, tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. You know, who are you? What's your occupation? Where do you come from? What is your country? What people are you? He said to them, I am a Hebrew and I fear the Lord. That phrase, fear the Lord, is a really important phrase. That is the Old Testament expression of worship. He's saying, I'm a God worshiper. I fear the Lord. I, I am a worshiper of Yahweh. That, that's what he says. And then listen to this. The God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. And he's saying this to sailors who are in the middle of a tempest. And, and then look, look at verse 10. For some reason, Jonah told the sailors that he was running away from God. He let that slip, you know. Why are you on this boat? He says, well, I'm trying to get away from the presence of God. They're like, huh, that's, that's interesting. And then later he says, oh, yeah, by the way, my God is the God of the seas and the dry land. Whoa, you didn't tell us that earlier, that your God is the God of the sea? And uh, look what they say. They say, what is this you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. So now they're really afraid. They say, what shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. He said to them, pick me up and hurl me into the sea. And then the sea will quiet down for you. For I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Now, this is really, I think, good-hearted of these men. They don't want to sacrifice him because they, they believe if they throw him into the sea, it will be his death. So they row as hard as they can to try to get back to land, but you cannot outrow God because this, the tempest was sent from God, and the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Therefore, and, and look at this, these men who called out to their own gods earlier, look who they cry out to now. They cry out to Yahweh. Oh, Lord, Yahweh, let us not perish. They are using the divine name of God, Yahweh. Let us not perish for this man's life and lay not on us innocent blood. For you, O oh Yahweh, have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. And then look at verse 16. Then the men feared the Lord. What does that mean? They worshiped the Lord. They worshiped Yahweh, these pagan sailors, and they offered a sacrifice to Yahweh, and they made vows. In other words, these men are converted. These men become God-fears. They become worshipers of God. But God is not done with Jonah. And really, this begins this next section of Jonah's rescue, verse 17. And the Lord appointed, the Lord appointed 
the Lord sends a great fish to swallow up Jonah. Notice it says fish. It doesn't say whale. I know we assume it's a whale. It's probably a whale. It's probably 95% possibility it's a whale, but it doesn't say it's a whale. It says it's a fish. So technically there's a small chance it was a large shark, but we don't know. It was a fish. It was a big fish, a great fish, great fish, probably a whale, but we don't know it's a whale, is sent to swallow Jonah, and there it is. Jonah is in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. And um, while he's in the, the belly of, of the well, you can read chapter 2, Jonah describes his experience essentially as death. It's basically, I was taken down to the depths and uh, there was no hope anymore. There was, there was no hope. It's like I was closed over. He says in verse 5, The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped around my head. The roots of the mountains, I went down to the land. Um, you know, it's talking about Mount Carmel coming down into the bottom of the Mediterranean in just the subterranean bottom of the sea. He says, I went down to that bottom, to that land in the bottom, whose bars closed upon me forever. It's like this experience of being dead, buried. And then, this is so beautiful, verse 7, look at verse 7. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord. Maybe he remembered Psalm 18, verse 16, where David said, He sent from on high, he took me, he drew me out of many waters. He remembers Yahweh. He remembers that God is a God of salvation, that God is a God of the supernatural, that God is a God of mercy. And, and what's our, our phrase? Salvation belongs to the Lord. He remembers who God is. Salvation belongs completely to the Lord. And he does a Louis Zamperini. Remember Louis Zamperini was on that raft in the Pacific Ocean? He said, God, if you will get me out of this, I will do anything. I promise you, Lord, if you will get me off this raft, if you will get me away from those Japanese uh, soldiers, and you will get me back to the States. I will do anything. I will give my life to you. And, and Jonah makes a vow. He says, Lord, if, if, if you get me out of this, I will pay back the vow. I will do what you want me to do. I will make a sacrifice to you, but save me. Salvation belongs to the Lord. God does. That's Jonah's rescue in chapter 2. Look at the very end. The Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. What an experience of salvation, right? Being expelled from the belly of a fish onto the dry land. Humbling, humbling picture of salvation. Can you imagine being at the beach, seeing a big, big well come up on the thing and... Out, out comes a, 
a man covered in seaweed and, you know, you're happy. You're also humbled. That's Jonah's salvation. Third chapter is Jonah's repentance. And it's also Nineveh's repentance, but it begins with Jonah's repentance. So God gives Jonah a second chance. Verse 1 says, The Lord, Yahweh, came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise. Now, you're in the presence of God. You go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. And uh, it says, Nineveh was in an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. So Nona, uh, Nineveh is a massive city. Um, you know, three days' journey in breadth, you have to think miles upon miles. So there's, um, what I was reading this week is that Nineveh had multiple cities around it. You, you would think of suburbs. You know, so it'd be like if you, if you were to say, hey, you need to walk across the, you know, the whole RDU Triangle. That, that's the picture. It's not just Nineveh. It's also, um, and, and I think the, the study Bible even mentions the name of these suburbs, uh, Rehoboth, Ir, Kalah, and Rezin. Those are the names of the suburbs. So you're talking large area there on the, on the Tigris River. And Jonah starts walking through that area, and then it says, this is his message. What a message. I mean, this is, if you're going to write a book, you know, how to win friends and influence people, this is, this is not the message you, you put in the book, right? I mean, can you imagine doing a course on evangelism today and saying, okay, all right, Tell us the message. What, what, what's the message we're to, we're to give? God's going to judge you in 40 days unless you repent. God's going to rain fire and brimstone down unless you repent. That's the message. There, there's nothing. There, I mean, look at this message. He says, yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. That was his message. That, that's it. I mean, he literally just goes in. And I mean, we were joking before the service. The newsboys had this song uh, they don't serve breakfast in hell. That's his message. You know, it's like, hey, hell's coming. You know, hell's hot. Uh, 40 days, and you're going down. That's the message. And the people of Nineveh, look at this, they believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. That, I mean, so you, you know it's a work of God. It's a sovereign work of God. You, I mean, you go to Hollywood, you go to, to downtown Raleigh, and, you, and, and, you know, I've seen the street preachers. And, uh, you know, people say, uh, if, you, if you don't trust Christ, you're going to hell. Everybody ignores them. Everybody ignores them. But they don't ignore Jonah. Why? What's the theme verse? Salvation belongs to the Lord. Because God is at work in Nineveh, softening the hearts. Because God is working. And for that reason, they repent. They believe God. They call for a fast. Now, this is amazing, this fast. This is unbelievable, this fast. Not only do they repent, 
not only do they put on sackcloth, they put on sackcloth on their animals. They take their cats, their dogs, their cattle, they put sackcloth on their animals. They fast, and they say, not only are we going to fast, the animals are going to fast. We're all repenting. I mean, no, no kibble. No. It's all repentance. It's all fasting. It's all ashes. It's all repentance from the king down to the least of these. There's, I mean, he says in verse 7, there's no water for you, no food, nothing. That's the depth of their repentance. Everybody is in sackcloth. And they, and they say, who knows, this is verse 9, God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. So they throw themselves onto the mercy of God. So here's the thing. They believe Jonah's message. They said, yes, we believe that God is going to overturn us, overthrow us, that we deserve judgment. They, I mean, they're not, they're not out there saying, you know, hey, we're, we're good people. We don't deserve this. Uh, we don't believe in God. Who are you to tell us that there's a God? No, none of that. They believe God. They believe that God is going to overthrow them. And there's widespread repentance. And verse 10, when God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. Now, does that mean that God changed his mind? Okay, here's something you need to understand about how the Bible describes God. Uh, Numbers says, book of Numbers says that God is not like a man that he should change his mind. This says God relented, that God said he would overturn Nineveh. Now God says, I'm not going to overturn Nineveh. Well, here's how we are to understand this. When the Bible describes God, it describes God in ways that we can understand. The Bible describes God in what we might call anthropomorphic language. In other words, in human-like terms. Because if we were just to describe God in, in uh, transcendent terms, we couldn't understand anything about God. So God has to condescend and basically speak baby talk to us and describe himself in ways that humans can understand. Now, here's the thing. God had foreordained that the Ninevites were going to repent. God knew that the Ninevites were going to repent. The means of their repentance was the warning through the prophet Jonah. And we're seeing essentially um, in, in terms that we can understand then that God responds to their repentance. And he does not cook Nineveh. Now we see, so that's, that's Jonah's rescue, and that's the rescue of, of Nineveh, and then, oh sorry, the repentance of Nineveh and, and Jonah's repentance, and then the fourth chapter is Jonah's remorse, Jonah's remorse, and this is really fascinating, chapter four, really fascinating. Look at verse one of chapter four, but it displeased Jonah exceedingly, he was very angry. Um, Jonah wanted to see a fireworks show. Jonah wanted to see God march on Nineveh. I mean, 
he wanted to he wanted to sit back and he wanted to see a reenactment of Sodom and Gomorrah. That's what he wanted. Verse 2, he prayed to the Lord. He prayed to Yahweh, and he said, Oh, Yahweh, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? This is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew, I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful and slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and and relenting from disaster. How does he know that? That's Exodus 34. That's what, do you remember when Moses was on the mountain and Moses says, let me see God, let me see your glory and God puts him in the cleft of the rock. He puts his hand over the rock and as he passes, he says his name, I am Yahweh, a God, great in mercy, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. Jonah says, I knew your character and I knew that if you sent me there, that you would, that you would save and you would have mercy on the people that I despise, and that you would relent of the disaster. And then he says, Therefore now, O Yahweh, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. Wow. What a perspective. Now, now remember, who's writing this? Jonah is. I mean, he's, I mean this is brutally honest. He hated the Gentiles so much, and specifically the Assyrians. He would rather them burn in judgment than to see them repent and be saved. And uh, the Lord says to him, he says, do you do well to be angry? Do you do well to be angry? Who are you? Who are you? And Jonah is still hoping that God will judge them that God will do his fireworks show. And so what he does is he goes outside the city. So he goes east of the city. This is verse 5. And he, and he builds a little house for himself. He builds a booth for himself. And he sat under it in the shade so he could see what would happen to the city. He's just hoping, God, rain on them, rain on them. And the Lord teaches Jonah a lesson, and he teaches Jonah a lesson through a plant. Essentially, the plant is an object lesson. It's, it's something, a visual that Jonah can see, that, that Jonah is going to learn what God thinks about Nineveh. So what God does is he causes this plant to grow, and it brings him shade, and he loves the plant, loves the plant rejoices over the plant. Then the next night, God appoints a worm to go and eat the plant. And the worm comes, and the worm attacks the plant, so the plant withers and dies. And then it says in verse 8, when the sun rose, God appointed, God sends a scorching east wind. I mean, don't you love this? I mean, <laughs> so not only does God take the plant away with the worm, God appoints a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die and said, it is better for me to die than to live. And God said to Jonah, do you do well to be angry for the plant? He said, yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And the Lord said, you pity the plant 
for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in the night and perished in a night. And then he says, And should not I pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle. So he says, look, let's, let's consider this. You didn't have anything to do with this plant, but yet you pity the plant. You are consumed with the plant, and you didn't have anything to do with the plant. Take this city, Nineveh, and, and, and who is, who's ultimately the God of Nineveh? Yahweh. He's, God is the creator of all things, all people. Everything belongs to him. And God says, look, you pity this silly plant. Should not I pity Nineveh? And he mentions, essentially, what you might call the innocent bystanders in Nineveh. Who are the people that don't know the right from their left? Those are little children. He says there's 120,000 little children in this city. There's also many animals and God says, should I not pity this city? If I bring judgment upon this city, all these little ones, all these cattle, they will die. So it's my prerogative. It's God's prerogative. This is Romans 9. God will give mercy to whom he will give mercy. He will harden whom he hardens. It's God, God's prerogative here to show mercy. And, um, and God is saying to, to Jonah, he says, look, you are pitifully showing mercy to this plant, but I am showing mercy to this great city in which all of these innocent bystanders are living, 120,000 persons who don't know their right from their left. So a couple, let me give you four things, I think, that as we're thinking about the book of Jonah to remember that I think Jonah really hammers out, and you see it over and over again, these four things. First, God is sovereign over every facet of his creation. God is sovereign over every facet of his creation. God is the one who sends that east wind. God is the one who sends the scorching sun. God is the one who appoints the fish. God is the one who softens the hearts of the Assyrians in Nineveh. God is the one who sends Jonah on the mission. God is the one who appoints the storm. Over and over and over again, it's Yahweh who is sovereign over his creation. He is. I, I, and sometimes we, we forget that. But God is sovereign over every raindrop. God is sovereign over every raindrop. And God is working all things in his providence. If you're a Christian, he's working all of that for your good in his glory. It's really remarkable to think about. But you have to hold to the sovereignty of God over all things. And then second, and I know I've been beating this drum, but salvation belongs to the Lord. It's his work. Uh, all of salvation is a work of the Lord from beginning to end. And uh, as we sang, um, I think this morning, that uh, sovereign grace shall be my, by, 
be my song in shall be till I die, right? It's, it's salvation is always of the Lord. So therefore, he gets all of the glory, all of the honor, all of the praise. It also means that we can't manipulate salvation. I see this all the time. I saw it on Easter. You know, we're going to do these big, you know, we're going to drop Easter eggs from helicopters and, you know, put John 3.16 in them and, all, you know, all, all this stuff as if you could entertain people into the kingdom. It's a fool's game. You can't do that. You can't, um, and, and this, is, this, this is incipient in American evangelicalism, evangelicalism going all the way back to Finney. You know, Finney would have what he called the anxious bench, and he would say, bring the, you know, the searchers up, the inquirers up, put them on this bench, and we're just going to play music and have an emotional appeal until they get up. Well, you can do an emotional appeal all day long, but that doesn't coerce somebody into the kingdom. Because for somebody to enter the kingdom, God has to do a heart work. God has to do that work. You, you can't manipulate that. Rick Warren once said, I, I can convince anybody to become a Christian if I know the secret of that man's heart. You can't do that. You can't do that. Paul says this, I planted, Apollos watered, God gave the growth. Salvation is of the Lord. Third, and, and this is really a, an important thing to, to notice, is that salvation is to the Jew and to the Gentile. And in many ways, the book of Jonah in the Old Testament is, is a precursor to the book of Acts, where God first brings salvation to the Jew, then the Samaritan, then the God-fearer, and then lastly to, to the outright Gentiles, that God's ultimate plan is to bring salvation to the ends of the earth, to every tribe, tongue, people, and nation we see in Revelation chapter 5, that God is going to save a people from across the globe, that God is going to flex his mercy and, and give mercy uh, to the nations. Um, God is a God of mercy. And, and what I crave is what we see in chapter 3, that there would be revival in our land, that there would be mercy in our land, that people would repent and they would, they would come face to face with God, that they would worship God as those sailors did, and that God's name would be revered once again in our land, that, that people would understand that God is God, there is a God in heaven, that one day he is coming to judge the living and the dead, there is a literal hell, there, there is a, a final judgment, and unless you repent and turn to Christ, you will be on the wrong side of that thing. That is, that is true. That, that is the ultimate reality, that there will be a final judgment and the sheep will be on the right and the goats will be on the left. And if you are not in Christ under the banner of his righteousness, then you will be in the congregation of the wicked and you will not stand. So I'm praying that Jonah 3, God would send revival, that he would soften the hearts. And this is, this is what we have to do as a church. We have to pray, pray, pray that God will bring revival, that God will soften the heart, that God will bring repentance to here and to the nations. And then fourth, remember that Jonah prefigures our Lord, that Jonah is a type of Christ 
as Christ was sacrificed, Jonah is sacrificed for the sake of the people. He's thrown into the sea. Christ is sacrificed on behalf of the nation. Christ is sacrificed for the sins of the world. Jonah spends three days in the belly of the fish. Christ spends three days in the grave. So the greatest meaning of the book of Jonah is the Christological meaning that Jonah looks forward to Christ who is to come. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for this picture of Christ that is given in Jonah, that he is the precursor, the one that was in the fish three days and emerged, so Christ was in the ground three days and was raised. Lord, we thank you for these truths, the reminder, Lord, that you are sovereign over every facet of your creation. Lord, we trust in your sovereignty. The reminder that salvation is entirely of the Lord, that you are the author of salvation from beginning to end, and that you are bringing that salvation to the entire world. Praise be to God, to everyone, to the Jew first, and then to the Gentile. So Lord, we pray, Lord, that you would continue to bring that salvation, that you would bring revival, that you would bring repentance. And Lord, may we trust in Christ all the more fully, who is and and performed the sign of Jonah and was literally raised from the dead in a literal body. It is to you that we hope. And we pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. Thanks for listening. For more sermons, information, and events, check out our website at capitalcommunitychurch.com.